Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I'm here with my friend Josh Proctor. Uh, Josh serves as Director of Social Media and Spanish Translation at Posture Shift. Uh, Posture Shift is a ministry similar to the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender that helps um, foster LGBTQ inclusion in the church under the rubric of a traditional sexual ethic. Josh holds an MA in biblical literature. His greatest passion is to help people grow in their relationship with Jesus. He also hosts a really killer podcast called Life on Side B. And Josh just has a fascinating story. He's a wonderful human being. I could have talked to him for hours and I learned a ton and you are going to learn a ton as well. So please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Josh Proctor. Hey, Josh, how are you, man? Good. How are you? I, we've seen each other never until the last month and then like twice in the last month. So uh, I feel like I kind of know you now. Can I call you my friend? <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Yes. <laughs> Since we, you know, yes, I, I know it's been funny. I feel like for so long we've been in similar circles and yeah. around each other, but now I have gotten to see each other in person. So, yeah. Yeah, your name. I mean, we talked it's, to the phone. I think once or twice. Um, but I've known yeah. of you for a long time, and like people are always shocked. Like you, you never actually hung out with Josh Proctor. So here we are hanging out for a third time. <laughs> exactly. Yes, and it's good. I'm excited to be here. Well, I, so I have no agenda really. I just I've heard your story secondhand, and then again from you firsthand. It just every time I hear it, I'm just it's it's pretty. Pretty incredible. So why don't you enlighten our audience? Uh, how, tell us who you are and the journey you've been on, man. I feel like you've lived like four lives already. Um, would love to dive into yeah. who Josh Proctor is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I normally talk. I normally joke with people that um, when you talk about like the four sides that we always talk about, like side A, side B, side Y, sex, all this stuff. Like I've been on all of them. I've yeah. been everywhere. <laughs> I've journeyed a lot. Um, and uh, I'm the youngest of five. I'm a Florida native, um, grew up in South Florida, and currently live in West Palm in South Florida. Hmm. Um, grew up in a Southern Baptist family, um, kind of just one of those families that was in church all the time. Um, none of my family, neither of my parents were in ministry, but definitely devout Christians. And I always knew I was attracted to men. Um, Always like, like on to men, even like, at, like before puberty or <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like I was talking to someone about this earlier, like even before puberty, I just remember being fascinated by men, just men fascinated me. And it, I came from a situation very, I feel like uniquely. Cause I always hear about, um, people who grew up in the church where they, um, from a very early on, they just heard really bad messages about like, gay people, my church just never talked about it. Okay. So I got to the point where I thought it was normal. I just was like, I remember telling my, my, my cousin when I saw like Justin Timberlake or something come on the TV and I was like, I want to marry him. And my cousin was like, that's not normal. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? And, um, so yeah, I grew up just kind of with this idea that I liked men. And then, um, 
but didn't really talk about it with my um, anyone beyond my one cousin who I brought it up with and then <laughs> alerted me that, like, right. Um, and so then um, I was bullied a lot in elementary school. I ended up switching schools twice in grade school because of bullying. But during my first school experience, I was called gay one day. Oh. And I didn't know what that term meant. And so I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go like, well, we didn't have Google, but I'm going to go look it up on the internet. And um, I found porn and I was like, oh, this is me, that, that, this is me. <laughs> and um, my parents found it the same day. Oh, wow. And uh, didn't say anything. Uh, my family is very anti-conflict. Like we do, n we don't deal with conflict. Um, and so I knew they had seen it. They didn't say anything. And then a year later, uh, they came to me and told me, uh, we saw like what you had been looking at. We're going to take you to a therapist. Um, so I was in fourth grade at this point. Oh, my God. Um, oh. And so I went to my first conversion therapist as in fourth grade. Um, went for multiple months. I asked my parents for a long time, um, like, for us to stop going. Finally, they did. I think it was like a point where I, like, it was all I put on my Christmas list. I was just like, I just want to stop going to therapy. And we did, and we didn't talk about it for multiple years. Real quick, Josh, um, can you explain Like, why? Was it was it oppressive, or was it just you just didn't like it? Or what didn't you like about it? I mean, that's an early age to process Yeah. I, I think for me, from what, um, like, from my experience with the, uh, with the therapist, he continually kept going over what a man is, what is the man's role in marriage and all of these different kinds of things. And I was like, I don't even understand me. I don't understand what I'm feeling. I don't get any of this. I don't need to be told what my role is when I don't understand myself. Yeah. Um, and so it just felt like a lot and it just brought on a lot of shame. It brought on a lot of all of these things. And not that the person was necessarily mean to me, like he seemed like a decent man, but um, it was, it just really did not help in any way. And I could even see that from that age. Um, but like through school, I ended up um, going through therapy, conversion therapy, uh, reparative therapy, ex gay ministries, all of that, just all of different types. I went through it eight different times oh um, throughout. Um, grade school years, all the way into early college. Some of those were um, voluntary. Okay. Some of them were by um, by suggestion. Like I would come to a pastor and share about being attracted to men, and then they would send me to a conference or to a counselor or to um, a ministry. Um, and then obviously the one time with my parents earlier on in fourth grade when I was yeah. forced to, but. Um, I mean, I think for a lot of, um, I describe a lot of my like grade school years um, as kind of this pendulum swing um, where, you know, you're told, especially going through ex-gay ministries and reparative therapy as a kid, you're given this message, you can't be gay and Christian. Huh. And gay is defined as this gay lifestyle of sex and drugs and all of these things. Okay. And so you try to be straight because this is what you've been told that you're supposed to do. And then you don't feel it working. 
Um, and I always say like one of the biggest issues with a lot of like reparative therapy and ex-gay ministries is that there's never a moment where someone says, oh, this might just not work for you. Like <laughs> no one ever says, hmm, maybe this is our fault. It's always, you need to push farther. You're not working hard enough. You need to keep going. Um, the Naaman story of him be, having to baptize himself seven times is a lot of times used of like, oh, what if you're just on your sixth time? Oh, wow. It's always put on the client that like you just need to do more. And what does that um, mean, and there's Josh, never more. to do like what, what do they tell you you're supposed to do more of like pray more or so normally, just I mean, <laughs> it's it, it depends. Like that's the hard part with reparative therapy it's a, or like we normally, I think nowadays in culture, we're using conversion therapy yeah. term. It, it's a wide range of okay. like ministries and organizations. There's not one type. Okay. Um, you have reparative therapy, which was an like actual, like therapists who are working. And normally for them, it was, you need to dive deeper into your childhood trauma. You need to dive deeper into your relationship with your father or the relationship okay. with the same sex. Because if you do that, that will heal your relationship, um, your your sexual desire for the same sex. Um, in more charismatic ministry circles, it might be you need to pray more, you need to do more deliverance, you need to do these kind of things. So it depended okay. on it, um, or even just you need to be more willing, you need to be more open to the spirit, these kind of things. Hmm. Um, and I'm not getting on charismatic circles, I am charismatic, so sure. yeah, yeah. just putting that out there for anyone listening. <laughs> um, <laughs> And yeah, so there's just this thing of like, you're continually trying, you're continually pushing forward, pushing farther. I felt it was never going anywhere. And so you go, well, I'm not really good at this Christian straight thing, but I've been given two options. You can be Christian or you can be gay. Well, I'll go give, live the gay lifestyle. And what I was told was the gay lifestyle was sex and drugs and, and all of these things. So even in high school would start, um, um, getting involved in very destructive life um, um, experiences and stuff and think that this was the gay lifestyle and be like, well, the ex-gay people are right. This isn't like healthy and this isn't uh, productive. I guess they were right. I'm going to go back. So then I would go back to conversion therapy. I would go back to these things. And oh. so it created this pendulum swing between these two okay. like extremes. Um, and kind of led me to a place of going, you know what, I'm really just tired of God. I'm just tired of it all, really. Um, got to a place in high school and early college where um, I was um, uh, really um, just fed up with faith. I had been kicked out of churches multiple times at that point. Um, I had had not great experiences um, with um, family on faith, and a lot of these things and came to a critical moment where I was in um, just very separate and um, separated from faith altogether. I ended up um, being, um, I ended up in sex work for a while. Wow. And that was a time where I thankfully um, uh, was spare, spared a lot of um experiences that a lot of my friends went through with, with sex work. Yeah. But for me, it ended up being um, something where I saw what my friends were going through um, who were in sex work as well and being like, I don't want my life to be that. Um, so 
um, I ended up getting help from um, um, someone to kind of work through a lot of that. And then, and ended up, that was really the critical moment for me of coming yeah. to Christ was realizing I needed Christ in order to, yeah. um, get out of sex work and just kind of work on a lot of areas of my life yeah. and work on trauma, trauma from ex gay stuff, all this kind of thing. And really got to a place of just going, God, I need you to love me for me. Like, yeah. I don't want to deal with this gay stuff right now. Like what I believe or anything on there. I just, I just need to be loved yeah. for me. Um, so I found, um, and so I, I, I was affirming, I, I didn't really go to affirming churches, but, um, held to affirming theology after, after um, coming, during this like, time. I, you came back to, you were like a, by that time committed Christian, or at least like, I want to follow God, but your theology was still. Yes. Affirming. Okay. I was in Bible school at this point. Oh, wow. um, okay. <laughs> yeah, I was getting my bachelor's in biblical studies. And, um, I told you, it just goes all over the place. Um, <laughs> I do, I do have another, I, I would, I want to, can um, I go back just really quickly? Go ahead. To, I, I just, I'm, I'm a curious person and I hope it's okay for me to, ask. I just, yeah. how do you, how do you, you said you got into sex work or fell into, how, can you, as much as you're wanting to, like, how, how does somebody fall into that? Like, is that like, I think we see it on the other side, like somebody is in sex work and then. We look at their past and they were, you know, raised normal person, whatever. But like, what happened? Like, how does somebody fall into something like that? Yeah. I mean, I think that, again, sex work is another thing that we talk about as one thing, a monolith thing, but it's really not monolith. People, like, it looks very different in different scenarios and different situations. We normally think of people standing on the street, which that can be for some people. Um, and for a lot of sex work is just done via internet. Um for me, it came out to, in high school and college, um, I uh, was very open sexually um, and ended up connecting with a guy I was going to sleep with. Mm-hmm. And then um, he offered money and he was like, how much do I owe you? Oh. And I was like, oh, well, I'm just going to sleep with him anyway. So <laughs> sure, wow. um, like, let's do it. And then he had a friend and then they had a friend wow. and then they had a friend. And um, normally the where like sex work turns to slavery for me is that um, clients will end up wanting to become pimps. They'll want to control the money. They'll want to get a, a, a portion of the money for the people that they um, refer. Okay. Um, and that was where I drew the line continually. I was like, no, no, if you refer someone – you're just referring them. Um, you're, you were, you don't get a portion or you don't get any of this. Um, because that's ultimately where many times a client or a boyfriend or like someone will then try and become, um, the pimp of sex yeah, workers, yeah. which then obviously leads So you really to, did fall in. I mean, the, that's the right word if you fell into it. Like it wasn't like, it wasn't like, intentional. I mean, yeah. it was intentional, but it wasn't I seeking out. There are people that like go in, no, I'm going to go into sex right. work because of whatever variety of reasons that they go into it. And, um, but for me, it was a very much a falling into it. And I don't, I, I don't try to be a, um, spokesman on what sex work is or, or how to care for sex workers. Cause I okay. really, my experience was my experience. Um, and, um, did it for about like a year or two. Okay. And um, 
and on, and honestly, it was it was a process to get out of that whole thing because I think also for me, sex work gave me um, kind of a sense of uh, authority over my own body and authority over sex. This area that I felt like between ex gay ministry and and faith and all of these things and how culture was dealing with LGBT issues, you know, in the nineties and the, and the two thousands, I felt like sex work gave me, um, a sense of ownership over my body and over, over, Mm. over sex that I didn't feel I got in other places of life. And so that was a lot that I had to work through with in therapy and, and a lot of these things afterwards and not in conversion therapy or anything, but through with, uh, um, in kind of rehab more settings. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, after that, I ended up coming to Christ. That's where I normally kind of count my like, coming to Christ moment was after that. Um, and just knowing that I, I needed, I needed Jesus to yeah. really get my life back together where I wanted to be, um, ended up in Bible school. And, um, after that found a man that I fell in love with. Um, we started, um, relationship and um, we're talking about what that could look like long term. Uh, and this and is during a, that time, this is a theologically conservative Bible school. Like, is a, a lot of this yes. kind of behind? Like, this is all kind of secret in a sense, or? Yeah, I was going to Palm Beach Atlantic University down here in South Florida. Oh yeah, and I mean, I didn't hide my relationship, but it was not very well known because of just the school and okay. and what the situation was. Um. But I, I do have to say I was always in a very loving context in the university. I did not have um, a bad experience myself okay. there. Um, but, yeah, after that, I had a moment where I wanted to visit a friend um, who uh, up in Orlando um, who was a man of faith and prayer. We didn't agree on queer issues or anything, mm-hmm. but um, we were friends. Like, he, he definitely fell more into the ex-gay sphere of things. Um, and my boyfriend at the time, who was not a Christian, um, uh, was not a fan of me going, uh, and we talked about it a lot. And then we got to the point where he was like, well, you're not going. And I was like, oh, well now I am because you just tried to tell me no. Um, so I ended up going to my friend's house. Um, and when I just walked in the door, I had an experience that I've never never really had before in my life, haven't really had since, where I just felt like the presence of God coming like in a way I hadn't. And um, it had nothing to do with LGBT issues. It had nothing to do with any of that. But I just felt this presence of God over me, showing me what God wanted to do with me and like just kind of ways that God wanted to work in my life and being like, look, this is... And, and God kind of saying, I can't, I'm not going to promise you a family, not going to promise you um, marriage, not going to promise you any of this, but I will promise you that if you give over this relationship, if you give all of this over for me, um, I will use you. And this wasn't audible or anything, but it was just an intense experience that I just felt. Um, didn't share with anyone because I was like, everyone's going to think I'm insane. Um and just processed it for a good long time. And like, and what am I willing to do on this? Like, what am I, what do I do? And I still remember one day, uh, was a, we were, uh, my boyfriend and I were going to a Valentine's day get together. Um, and 
uh, on our way back home from there, I just asked him to pull over and I just shared about it. And I was like, I know that you don't understand this because like, there's so many barriers that like, I'm Christian, you're not. And then yeah. I'm t- like all of these things, but, um, I really think I need to do this. And he's such a loving man. Um, still care for him so much. And he was like, if you have to do it, then you have to do it. Like he was very um, caring in that way. Um, I left him after that, had one of the worst years of my life Mm. of just angry at God that he would take away the relationship that I had, feeling God had destroyed my life. Um, God and I went through some very, very dark, hard conversations the year after I left that. And I didn't really know where to go. So I went through my last um, spout of ex-gay ministry. I went to a live-in program because oh, wow. I didn't know. One more time. Like, this oh, my is gosh. Had. Yeah. And I, my experience had happened in the house of a person who identified as ex-gay. And so I was like, maybe that's where I'm supposed to be. And I got kicked out of that house, um, that live-in program. And um, for a few years after that, I just said, you know what? Forget this. I'm... I'm, I'm not going to deal with this issue. I'm just not going to have sex, going to love Jesus, do ministry, and that's it. And so people knew about my story. People knew that I was attracted to men, but I didn't talk about it. If you were affirming ex-gay anywhere, I cut you out of my life. I was like, I'm done. I just don't want to deal with it. Mm. And that was most of my, that was my life for multiple years until then. Um, the Pulse nightclub shooting happened. Right. And Obviously, I had gone to Pulse, like being in Florida. I knew people who were there. I, I knew someone who had died, like all of this oh. kind of stuff. And it was it was very real for me. Um, it took me multiple years to even just go visit um, the site. And um, I just felt God saying, like, your family needs you. And I'm like, what am I what am I going to do? I'm I was living in Columbia, South America at the time, like uh, doing ministry. I don't know what to do. And so then after that, I was doing my master's in Old Testament and Hebrew um, at Nyack College in New York on um, online. But I went to New York for an intensive and um, grew up going to New York a lot. So I normally when I go to New York now, I, I just end up um, sitting and people watching a lot because um, New Yorkers fascinate me as well. Um, and so I was I was in Hell's Kitchen, like just watching people and noticed man, I've been all over the city and I've seen churches, but I haven't seen any in like Hell's Kitchen, which is a predominantly queer gay area of Manhattan. And um, so I took this to my class and um, my uh, one of, and had just someone say, well, you know, gay people don't want the gospel. And I was like, so you don't go? Like, <laughs> this makes no sense. Like, even, first of all, there's so many things wrong with that statement, right, even right. if it was true. Like, let's just say that even if it was true, then literally most missions we shouldn't be doing yeah. because no one knows truly what they need in these ways. And so um, that lit a fire in me of going, you know, what? I need to sit down and really understand my theology around this. And I need to be doing something because people are dying and people don't care. And so that took me on a multi-year journey of just trying to finally put my degrees <laughs> to mm-hmm. use in biblical studies and um, understanding it and just getting to know queer Christians of all sides and 
and developing more of it and getting involved in ministry and then slowly came to a side B position, which is where I would say I'm strongly sit now. Um, and so, so real quick, so when you, you had that almost through an encounter with God, but not through like a theological wrestling, it was really just God again, speaking or, or impressing upon you that you need to leave your boyfriend Right. So it was it was first kind of more of a spiritual experience and then later was a theological journey. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Like it was more first I had this experience with God. I like I didn't have a theology. I would never have argued with someone at that time about what theology like was supposed to be. It was just like yeah. I am not supposed to have sex. <laughs> like <laughs> this is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. And then later on after my experience in New York and my experience at Pulse, I started a theological journey Got it. Okay. of really trying to understand. Okay. And I even, I sat down with my family at that time and I was like, listen, I might go back affirming. I might go here. I might go there. I don't know where I'm going to end up. Um, and I'm not saying any of these are not possibilities. And so That's really real, it, just try like to a, go. It's a very genuine journey. Like, cause in most cases, not not in every case, but people are like, well, I'm going to study the theology, but deep down they kind of have a position they either want to land at or need to land at for job security, the church they're working at, whatever. For you, it, it I mean, there is no blank slate. We all have biases on some level, but for you, it really was yeah. an open-handed, like, I'm totally fine going wherever the text leads. I mean, to use the cliche. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of like, obviously, yeah, I think one of the things, all of us who get into biblical studies, we know you you approach the text and you try to become aware of your biases. You try to become aware right. of where you know the text is leading and um, and all of these. And so, yeah, I, I, I tried to, I understood, I had a bias of like a, a childhood of going through ex-gay ministry mm-hmm. and had a previously been affirming. And so like there were multiple things that were pulling me in multiple ways. Um, but tried to, also be honest with my boss at the time and just be honest with everything and just being like, listen, this is where I'm at and this is where I'm figuring out and I don't know where I'm going to go. And, um, and, and doing that. And Mm -hmm. I tried not to give myself, I feel like sometimes we can put a requirement of when we need to have a final answer. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how long it'll take me. It could take me 20 years. Like, um, it, it could take me a year. It could take me two months. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, I, I feel like it took a while, but even that is just a short version of kind of just where I went and, and kind of how I've come to a place like, and I always say I'm still growing and I'm still sure. learning even theologically. I would say the fundamental questions on it have become really solidified in my life at least. Um, but always looking to grow and learn. And and part of that has been that theological journey. Part of that has been learning what is my relationship like to the church now, relationship to this? What is my relationship to the queer community now in relationship to this? Um, And so, whereas before, during those few years, like when I was like, I'm not talking to anyone, I'm not dealing with this. There was a part of me that had to open myself back up to the queer community, getting involved in the community again, becoming friends again with people. Um, again, of all sides of like affirming people, side B people, wherever. Um, and yeah, just try, like gr- trying to grow in many of these ways. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I do. I'm curious, just theologically, can, he, can we 
I would love to unpack that just a little bit. Like what were some of the, I guess, theological arguments, whatever you're wrestling with, what were you reading? Can you, I would just love to get a little more insight on what your theological journey looked like. And even, even now, like what are, you know, maybe strongest arguments for each side, you know, um, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's a really good question. Cause I, I, I mean, I feel like there's been just so much of, Oh, I read this and then I read right. this and then I read this. I still remember reading your book and I was <laughs> like, going, I like that was, I, at that point I didn't even know the names of the sides. Like I was still very much like, oh, like I, I remember I picked up your book. I picked up Justin Lee's book. I picked up Washington and Waiting. I picked up Matthew Vine's book. Mm-hmm. Um, I even picked up like Robert Gagnon's book, like all of these different kinds of books, like about just yeah. and very slowly. Yeah. Um, and, and like not even all at once. Like this is, oh, this this year, this this year, this this okay. year. And um, and reading bits and reading all of this stuff. Um and I, I definitely became aware that um, no side was going to be, uh, like, chosen without questions that weren't completely, like, fulfilled. That no matter where I landed, there were going to be areas where I was going to be like, I don't have a perfect okay. answer to this, but, like, this is what I think is the strongest answer. In some of, like, in some specific aspects. But I think for me, what truly began to form as I solidified my like theology around it was rather than having a theology of marriage, having a theology of community and sexuality, I would say probably one of the books that was most impactful for me was redeeming sex by Deborah Hirsch. Oh yeah. Um, I really loved her book and just in the sense of that holistic view of sex, sex and sexuality, that this is not even just about sex. Like she, she compartmentalizes sexuality into three parts, gender sexuality, social sexuality, and genital sexuality. And I, that really was impactful for me to think about this idea that sex is just one part of sexuality. It's not the encompassing aspect of sexuality and that there's so many other aspects. And so I think for me that really began to form really more a theology of community that decenters sex and marriage from the aspects of sexuality as one part of it, but not the whole. Because really, I think as we look in scripture, we see this this move, especially in Jesus, that sex and marriage are not the center point of importance for the family of God. Ultimately, family is no longer being... Um, being defined biologically, as we see in Matthew, Jesus saying, whoever does the will of the father is, is my brother and my mother. Um, we see the whole thing of like in the kingdom, we will be like the angels. Like there's this whole idea that, and then we even see in, I feel like in Ephesians, this thing of like barriers are being brought down. We are all being Mm. brought together. Um, there's this idea that ultimately in the kingdom, we will all share relationship Mm -hmm unilaterally together as one family none like will be more like we will all be joined in this way that we can barely even understand now and so um i I really just found this lifting up of chosen family this lifting up of the family of god as chosen family in this radical like way that just i still am trying to comprehend um and so for me, I think that was really one of the biggest things that led me to um, my position. Um, obviously, there was like thinking on um, 
on verses and and about marriage and all this. I'm also a big John Salehammer fan. Oh, yeah. Um, big on design pattern stuff. Um, and looked a lot on like, what is the relationship between men and women and eunuchs and huh. all of these things throughout the Bible. Um, so that was be was a big thing for me. But I really think it all came back to this idea of looking at what, what life and community is going to be like in the kingdom. And I just saw marriage wipe away, like, and just fade away. Huh. And um, was like, why am I spending so much time thinking about marriage when there's this grander intentional community that is so much more like that is so important for God. And, and I think that got me so involved in intentional community in like these ideas of like wanting to find a church where I wasn't just seeing them on Sundays. Like we were in each other's lives. Um, Have you you experienced that Josh? Cause I, I, I I mean, everything you're saying is like, I I want to wholeheartedly (laughs) sign off on theologically and biblically. Like it's to me, it's just so indisputable and and how our culture both our secular culture to some extent with Disney our Disney culture and 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 the church to an even greater extent this this idolatry of marriage and just it's just in the air right of Christianity western yeah. Christianity that well not just western but um that marriage is kind of a massive goal in life and if it doesn't happen something went wrong and you know all, all that like on paper biblically it seems so clear to me but then I look and it's like, but the 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 practical well, practice. piece is that Mark ten, Matthew nineteen, like if you give up and follow, give up your family and follow me, you will get brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and fields and you know. But it's like, okay, but is that happening? <laughs> That's the biggest thing. It's like, I hope so. I in my journey, I haven't yeah. Experience that always, or I would say typically in in the church. Um, and I look at my own life, and I'm part of the problem. Like I fall into the same kind of patterns that typical Christians do, you know, of probably working too much and overemphasizing biological family and all this stuff. Um, have you experienced it? Have, have you have you tasted the kind of community that you envision the New Testament is kind of prescribing for us? I do believe I have, but not to the fullest that I think it's meant to be. Sure. Um, I definitely have had people that I thought would be that deep, like community for me that I thought would be there for life. And through relational situations, it just didn't work out. Like it's yeah. been hard and there's been times where I've wondered, is this possible? Like, I don't know. Hmm. Um, I definitely have been encouraged by looking at Paul's letters and seeing how many Paul's of Paul's letters. The reason he's writing is because people aren't getting along. And he's like, here's my <laughs> theological explanation for why you all need to get yeah. along. But I have, I have like, even the church that um, I'm a part of now, I took a lot of when I moved. So I, I moved back in the past year from Columbia, South America to the States, back mm-hmm. to Florida. Mm-hmm. And um, spent a lot of time, told myself, I was like, I'm not going to pick a church immediately. I want to, when I, when I decide to be part of a church, I want it to be like, unless the church becomes heretical or like yeah. I'm moving, this is my home. Um, and so I spent like, it, it was actually been a recent decision that I called the pastor and I was like, no, I want to become a member of the church. Okay. Um, um, it's been almost since February, a long journey of mm-hmm. 
visiting churches and getting to know this church. And this is a church, it's, it's smaller and, but it's been a church that, um, most of the, most of the, um, the pastors have counseling degrees over theology degrees. Um, and so it's a very relational, like we're going to try and understand how we can have, um, just radical relationships across divisions and push people towards listening. Um, and it has been an amazing situation for me to be able to be with, even in this very intentional situation where we're getting together outside of Sundays and trying and building community and a place where, um, I can be in deep relationship with pastors and, um, and, trying to grow in that way of going, even there's people here that I normally would not connect with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just normally I would not connect with, but we're learning how to listen to each other and grow together and grow in the word in these ways. And and obviously not perfect in that. But even for me, I think um, like there's also been that way of one of my desires has been to, is to develop an intentional community um, and being in the middle of that. Um, and, and trying to grow that has not always been easy, but I believe that there's been tastes of it that I've been able to experience with the community that I have been able to and um, to develop. I, I do think that there are ways that we can see it. I do think it's hard because we live in a culture that that is not how we think. That is not the way we that we operate. We emphasize our our biological family and these things over like mm-hmm. our spiritual family in importance. And sometimes I get that's needed, um, but sometimes it's hard because our men- mentality is not that. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I I do think that there are ways that people find um, community in the midst of knowing like it's kind of like the. Uh, now but not yet situation yeah. of like I've talked with multiple side B people of like this is one of the reasons for celibate partnerships even of that like we want to build a grand intentional community but sometimes we have to find community in pairs mm-hmm. even as we're building that broader community kind of thing yeah. of yeah. like how do we find community in the midst of changing it yeah. kind of thing um, so it's been hard yeah. I don't want to just give a and just be like, yep, and then it happened, and then we are all happily ever after. Um, it's been hard. There's been situations where chosen family hasn't worked out as I thought it would. Um, there's been situations where uh, it hasn't worked, but then there's also been really great glimpses I've been able to find to see that it's worth pursuing and pushing yeah. forward in. Um, but it has taken radical introspection of my own life, of seeing how I interact with people um, I would say more than I ever thought it would of looking at how I interact with people and trying to grow in my listening, in my um, selflessness, in generosity, in humility, in these yeah. kind of ways that like has really been a dying to self than I ever thought. No, that's good. I, I like that already. Not yet. So you're you're not putting. I don't know. Like you you want to not putting too high expectations that that this is going to be fully experienced in the now, that there will always be a not yet mm. component. I think that's helpful because you could get really discouraged, right? If you have a really yeah. high, I mean, the high expectation, I just mean like a biblical expectation, and then you're constantly not experiencing that, you can get really discouraged. I also, um, there's just things in our Western, not to, again, not just Western, but 
modern culture yeah. that it just I, I have you read the book uh, Bowling Alone? It's old now, it's like twenty years old. Um sociologist Robert oh. Putnam. Um yeah, fascinating how um, even things like the invention of the car, which led to subur- suburban culture and commuterism, yes. and and that, you know, back in the day, as in like before, you know, a hundred years ago, you shopped in the same area, you walked, you 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 were civically involved because that was just in your face, and your neighbors were the people that ran the baker and butcher shop or whatever. And you, you get glimpses of this in Europe. And I don't know if Colombia would be similar. Um, in South America, that was my life. I didn't have a car. I walked everywhere. You got to know your your, right. your people. You got to, I got to know the man that I passed every morning at 9 a.m. And we were like, hi, yeah. once again. And those, How are but those structures don't, especially in, I've been to Florida and it's like, nobody walks. You drive, a, you know, across the street to go to Starbucks, <laughs> and, you know, and, and it, it is it, too hot. We do not. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I, I, when I lived in Scotland, um, it, it was much more, everything's much more condensed and you did, it's just a walking culture. Everything is very tight and compact and even churches where, I mean, even there, like the, it was a much more parish model to where if you're part of the Church of Scotland, like you don't choose your church. You just go to the church that's part of your parish and like that kind of culture it it does definitely make it a lot easier to have this kind of messy but authentic church community whereas now it's like it, it's it's there's several it's factors that just make it extremely hard and I, I don't know what to do with that i mean part of me you know wants to go all francis chan and say let's just dismantle the whole system then and rebuild it <laughs> i don't know if i have the energy for that anymore yeah. but you know um yeah i don't know I, I do think that that's true. Like, and I think that there are ways that I experience community in, in Colombia that I, I think are similar and then different yeah. as well. Like, for instance, I, I, I even think within the family structure in countries like Colombia, it's not odd for children to live with their parents, like right. into late adulthood, like for families to live together, invite other people together. My like my chosen family in Colombia was a family that just let me stay with them. And it was three grown children in their thirties and their parents and me, and mm-hmm. we all just shared life. And even there were other family members that didn't live with us, but they, we just shared life. Yeah. And, um, there's this kind of radical understanding of that, that of people do that, that I think is normally, I, I think our culture is even worse on it mm-hmm. than others. Um, there are ways that I think that it's just a human experience in some ways that we separate. But then I think that there are some ways that especially American culture, we do it even more. Um, so yeah, and it's hard. I, I, I think that I've talked with multiple side B people who like, I, that's one of the things I've always loved about side B movement, like side B Christians, because I feel like this has been always been one of the emphasis of us is yeah. like, just really heightening community outside of marriage and like obviously still seeing that marriage is great and marriage is good. And even an intentional community, you have married couples like in my church, like there's most people are married. Um, Like you have this and that's great. But then looking at how to build community beyond that, because ultimately even married people need community beyond marriage, beyond one other person. Um, And like it, it, there's even been conversations I've had with side B people going, we, w- even as we change this, we have to understand it's probably not going to happen in our lifetime. 
Even as we try and bring inclusion for LGBT people, we have to understand it's probably not going to happen in our lifetime. So we have to learn how to live in that now, not yet Yeah. in many ways um, that um, and part of that's it's not going to happen until the kingdom. But we, we still are working towards that yeah. because ultimately there's even things that we want to be able to bring. Um, and, and I think that's been something that just celibacy has taught me that I really think has been good because I can't rely on that biological family like others can. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many ways. No, that's, and that's, that's something I've learned over the years and only more recently kind of reflected on that, how much I've learned about biblical community by hanging out with LGBT people, because it, for yeah. me, it's like, I have to remind myself, oh yeah, you know, I have to keep, you know, like I, I need outside community. I need friends and all this stuff for <laughs> many yeah. of my at least celibate gay and lesbian friends, it's mm-hmm. like, this isn't just an add on. This is how I flourish. If I don't have this, then I'm not going to yeah. flourish. So it's yeah. just t- teaching me the necessity of it. How can I would, I would love for you to speak into just churches. Like how can churches, maybe leadership, whatever church structures, like how can churches be a place of flourishing for, um, LGBT people who are, you know, trying to follow the historic sexual ethic um, or even exploring that. Maybe they're not quite there, but how, how can, what are some blind spots that churches have that make it really hard for LGBT people to, to flourish in their churches? Um, I mean, I guess yeah. we're kind of talking yeah. about it a little bit, but I, real concrete, like real concrete things that maybe churches do that make it difficult for LGBT people. Um and it's things they could do maybe better or things maybe they are doing that you've experienced like, Hey, this church was doing this and this was super helpful for my gay and lesbian friends. Yeah. I think that, um, um, kind of on this whole realm of singleness and and marriage, I I think one thing that, um, churches can many times do is, is just look introspectively on that because regardless of where an LGBT person is on their beliefs on theology, um, like, LGBT culture understands chosen family and the need for it, because even if they have a partner, many of us don't have relationship with our like, you know, uh, family of origin. And so we don't have really family, even in that sense. And so being able to create spaces where it's not just centered on marriage, like I've always said, rather than having a marriage conference, why don't you have like a relationship conference? Mm. Because we all have relationships to grow <laughs> That's in. That's good. Like we all have important people in our lives. It could be a best friend. It can be a partner. It can be marriage. It can be in all these things. Talking about conflict resolution, talking about like many times I've gone to marriage conferences uh. as a, like as a <laughs> celibate person and been like, I relate to all of this, like so all of it. Like maybe not the sex part, but the rest of it, I really like very much connect to. So I've always said like, it's not necessarily don't talk about like marriage, but talk about relationships because we all can deal with that. We all can like relate to it because we all have important people in our lives that we're trying to do life with um, in that way. And so recentering that I think is a major, major point. Um, I've always said, like, be able to allow people to come with questions, be able to allow people to come raw as they are, because mm-hmm. even if a person is committed to the um, traditional sexual ethic, they probably have things that they process with, right. you know, that they're processing, right. they're trying to learn about and grow in. Um, and I think that, like, that is 
um, an absolute major thing. I also think that um, another big thing is um, have your leadership reflect the people that you want to um, reach and you want to care for. Um, so even if it's not someone on your on your staff that's LGBT, like have people that are not married and are not like having the requirement that someday they get married. You know, like this right. kind of going back to the theology thing. If you want to also talk about like one of the reasons why I I landed on side B over like side A or more conservative theology, it's always been I felt like the others always felt fell into the same mindset of sex and marriage being the ultimate fulfillment of how we get community. Because I found most people, even on side A, falling into that same thing. Yeah. Well, I want people to thrive. And I'm yeah. like, well, you don't need sex to do that. Right. Yeah. Um, but like, right. I, I, I think like we, we can't have people going like, oh, they can't serve as a single pastor. You know, like the, we, we need to be able to have our, our staff reflect the people that we want to reach yeah. in that way. Um, and, and I think, obviously, I, I think creating avenues for people to have listening, like one of the things I love that my church does that um, has been really amazing. As, as I said, all of the pastors are, um, oh, most of the pastors have counseling degrees. Mm -hmm. So our life groups are what we call story groups, huh. where um, they're much like processing groups where every week someone brings a story that they're processing related to faith, related to something. And no one can say like, oh, that's wrong, like you need to like not do that. But it's more of connecting with where the person is at, like connecting with where they're at in their story and being able to um, like just help them process like whatever they're processing. Like, yeah. and um, it's all confidential in many of these ways. And so being able to allow avenues where people listen and can just come raw in these things, I think like there's so many other things I could say, but like, yeah, I think that good. these are, some quick stuff. I'm curious if you're do you, do you like identify as gay or same sex attracted? Does it matter? Do you have, do you prefer one term or the other? And my 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 main question is how are you received at your church? Like, is it an issue? Are, are, I hate to even word it this way, but as you know, this is are you an issue at your church? Are yeah. people are like mm, not sure about this guy or he shouldn't use the term gay or or is it not an issue? Yeah, no, I prefer, I normally prefer the term queer because I believe oh, right. that there's like, there's just parts of myself that don't really fit into the term gay, but I also will automatically like, um, um, like I'll use whatever term ultimately is needed to communicate to a person. Like if I think okay. queer is just going to be way too much for a person, I'll just be like, yeah, I'm gay. Um, <laughs> Or I'll say I'm same-sex attracted if if I feel like using LGBT terminology is okay. going to be a hindrance. Okay. Um, because yeah, and I mean it's it's kind of hard. Like obviously I work with posture shift, so I'm working with conservative pastors all the time. So I'm always being attentive to that. But majority of my local community is actually non-Christian queer people, oh. like like people who don't even believe Jesus or God exists. And so I kind of sit in two very extreme huh. situations where I'm not just like the only side B person, I'm the only Christian. Wow. Um, and then on top of that, then working with a lot of conservative pastors. So I'll normally just identify as needed in these ways. Um, and with my church and my local community, it's been super like I that was one of my biggest things was I don't want to have a church where I need to like put on a show right. or hide something about me. 
Um, like I want to be able to be in a church where I can identify as gay, not be an issue. I can identify as celibate and not be that not be an issue. And also not have a problem that most of my friends are very, very strongly LGBT. I am around like in the gayborhood of South Florida a lot. Like that, this is not an issue for people. <laughs> yeah. Um like that I, I go in these spaces. I don't want to have to hide from my pastor that I was just down in Wilton Manors the night before. Yeah. Um and so thankfully that's been a really great avenue, like place where that's not been an issue. What what all. are you uh, what church is your church a denominational church or uh, yes, it's part of ECO Presbyterian. Oh, okay. Uh, it's called, yeah, called Providencia. ECL, so. Evangelical. ECO. ECO. It's Evangelical. Oh, gosh. I think it's like <laughs> Evangelicals have an order of Presbyterians or something. Well, I, I, I do not know. Where is it theologically in relation to like PCA, PCUSA? Is it like in between or more PCA or? I don't or? like, so this is where I'm learning a little bit <laughs> because so I'm, my church home has really for a long time been the Christian Missionary Alliance, which oh, is a much right. more um, like care, like much different than this. Yeah. And uh, even that's where I'm ordained and everything there. Um, like my plan had been to join a CMA church, but there aren't many in my area. Okay. Um, and um, the CMA is normally much more um, uh, does uh, mostly like not mostly. In my area, it's mostly immigrant churches. So we most of our churches in our area are Haitian churches, and I don't speak Creole, so I Whoa. can't really go. Um, <laughs> but um, so it's very odd for me to be in a Presbyterian situation. Yeah. <laughs> but from what I understand of ECO, um, it is um, obviously still holds to a traditional view on sexuality, but it does ordain women. So okay. um, uh, yeah. So I don't really know a lot beyond that right? because I've just been encompassed in my like local church. But I also like I, I, um, the CMA in Columbia where I, uh, really got involved in the CMA has been ordaining women since like the seventies. And so that was always like a really big thing for me, uh, was, okay. um, to be a place where, uh, like there would be female pastors, um, and so that was another thing okay. that came up in that way. The CMA does not ordain women here in the States, but in Colombia it does. Oh, really? So, the CMA doesn't here in the States? I didn't know yeah. that. Okay. No, so the CMA is is very different in that every country can kind of make some of its own, like operate how it wants okay. to. Um, and so the CMA in Colombia, not to get off into another tangent, yeah. but like this is actually a fascinating story. The CMA of Colombia started uh, ordaining women in the 70s because during the conflict with the rebels in Colombia, uh, since the CMA sided with the government over the rebels, they killed a lot of the pastors of, of oh. the Colombian CMA. And so they didn't have men oh, wow. like to lead the churches. So they let their wives, their wives started leading the churches. And so they just started ordaining their wives. And then we got to a place where it was like 30% of all of the pastors were women. And so we're like, okay, I guess we're like, wow. this is a thing now. That's crazy. So, um, yeah. so a lot of my theological journey has been in the CMA of Columbia okay. um, and where I was like trained and brought up. And you, you so yeah, so. Did you know Spanish before going to Columbia or did you just become, you'd learned it there? I learned it there. I did not know uh, anything 
Like my dad still holds this again. Well, not holds this against me in high school. When you had to pick a language, I was like, I'm going to do sign language. And he was like, you live in Florida, South Florida. (laughs) You need to learn Spanish. And I was like, when am I ever going to learn Spanish? Like, when do I need it? When will I ever need Spanish? And so when I moved to Colombia, I didn't speak any Spanish and I would call my parents and just be like crying. I was like, I'm never going to learn this language. I might be like, if you had learned it in school, you wouldn't be in this situation. And I was like, I hate you so much. Because <laughs> you're like fluent, fluent, right? I mean, you're yeah, not just get I, by. I teach in Spanish um, for posture shift. I teach, I've taught posture shift intensives in Spanish. Wow. Definitely, I could have room to grow because most of mine has been just like off the street. I, okay. I took a few classes, but I learned off the street. So if I talk long enough, Native speakers will be like, oh, yeah, you're not native. But if I like in general language, even down here in South Florida, like this has been like a common thing, especially after coming back and stuff. Like a lot of people will end up thinking I'm Latino. Um, And then I have to remind them, no, I'm not. I'm just basic white. That speaks Spanish. (laughs) That's it. Hey, before I let you this go, so, Josh, um, yeah. tell us about your podcast, Life on Side B. Um, would love. Yeah. I, I've listened to a few episodes, and uh, it's always super thoughtful and engaging. I like that you have a a, a diverse array of guests you have on. But t- yeah, tell us about Life on Side B. Absolutely, it's grown into something I didn't really think it ever would. Um, so Life on Side B started as part of towards the end of that like whole theological journey I was telling you about when I, when I had solidified what I believed, then the next question came up, how am I going to live in because of this? (laughs) And so I wanted to get, I wanted to hear from side B people about what they, how they lived, like Mm -hmm. mixed orientation, marriage, celibate partnerships, intentional community, like all of these different kinds of things. So I started asking people for conversations and other people who heard me asking about it, they were like, Oh, I would love to hear that. And I was like, well, I'll record it and put it out there so everyone can hear it. Um, and so season one started on, uh, with the theme of community and belonging. And again, really just from a more personal thing of, I need to figure out who's going to be in my life till I'm 80 years old. Mm -hmm. So let me ask everyone else what they're doing. Um, And yeah, it took off and then got some suggestions about like, you should bring on a co-host team and brought on, we're now a group of six, which is so interesting having a six person co-host Who else? I think I know all the co-hosts. Who else? Or I don't think all of them are necessarily out, right? Or... uh, no, not we have one that's not com- not completely out. Um, but we have Becca Mason from oh, Revoice. Yeah. We have Henry Abudo, Elizabeth Black from Kaleidoscope, um, right. Grant Hartley from his very famous Twitter, and <laughs> and Ashley as well, who is not out. Okay. Um, but um, they they the one thing I really tried to do with our co-host team was um, pick a pick a team that was diverse on all the perspectives within side B as much as possible. Difference of living situation, married people, single people, um, like different culturally and all of this. So like, it's very funny because we, we all are really great friends. We all at times have very different views. We all come from different stuff and wanted just side life on side B to be a place where 
all the aspects and conversations that are happening inside B, like just ha- let's have a family sit down and we're like, anyone's welcome to listen, but we're just having it like mm-hmm. in-house in a sense of like, we're not doing the explaining work from the front end. We're just kind of right. doing it. That's good. Um, so yeah, every, every season we have a theme. And so we've done community and belonging, thriving instead of surviving, identity inclusion. And now we're going to get into resilience. Like how do you do this long-term? Like what do you need to live this out long-term? Um, and it's been a super major growing thing for me, especially being able to now with the co-host team, like just allow everyone else to like take it on, may take more of a producer role. I still like am heard on it sometimes, but um, it's it's been growing. It, it's been a growing process just to really learn how do we include everyone and how do we have everyone's voices heard and um, we have people that are for or against many things in our community and um, how do they relate to people of other sides? And um, so it's it's become a lot more than anything I ever thought it would. <laughs> um, and it's and many times the questions that we put are like questions that I'm asking or questions our co-hosts are asking. We we really try to put it from a place of like we're not experts. We're asking questions and mm. we're at like that we're actually asking from our own lives. And if anyone wants to listen as we figure it out, yeah, we're here. And we're doing it because I I just I don't want anyone to ever think that um, any of us are these perfect people that have figured out our lives. Like we are all a bunch of messes. (laughs) All of us are hot messes in how we live this out and trying to figure it out. And the whole community is a hot mess at times. And I love them. And I think that's that's grace and that's faith. And that's what the New Testament is. Um, so it's yeah. been, it's been a fun journey and we're still on it. It sounds like it's <laughs> very similar to the vibe. I, I wouldn't say I like really th- pre-planned. It's just kind of what, it, what happened. Like I just wanted to have yeah. interesting conversations with a diverse group of people and hit record, you know, um, I, I would say in the exactly. last year or so, um, yeah, it, it's, cha- I think it's challenging for some people. I, I, still do the same thing but you know if if somebody hears me quote-unquote platforming a viewpoint they don't like or they think is dangerous whatever then you know they're like how could you have that person on or what about you know and like but then next week i'll have somebody on they'll have a different viewpoint on the same topic whatever and and um yeah yeah so i i think most people i think kind of get the genre of podcast or at least style it sounds like both of us kind of have um, but for some people, it's not. If yeah. you're public with your conversations, you need to be elevating truth and, and not error, or whatever. <laughs> whatever <Yeah>. that. <laughs> of course, everybody has their own you know version of what what that looks like. But uh, I, I don't know. I, th- I feel like we're we're just as a society, we're trying to figure out. We're at the beginning stages of what podcasting is compared to books and film and, and yes. other, you know, um, cause yes, yeah, so some, some podcasts are very much like a book, like the, like you're promoting a certain viewpoint all the time. Um, mm-hmm. I just, and that's fine, I guess. I just, that's not the style I'm going for, but yeah. Yeah, I know. I totally agree. It's always been like a thing that we've been trying to figure out how to balance is like, you know, I, a big thing in the celibate, like in the side B conversation has been even like, some people see mixed orientation marriages as very ex-gay, 
you know, uh, like a shadow of ex-gay because that's like ex-gay like promoted so much. And some yeah. people don't see celibate partnerships as anything viable. And right. so like, this is just one example. We've been, we've, we've had to like kind of figure out as many, uh, as many as guests will come on kind of situation of like, well, how do we platform this? Cause this is how people are living. Like right. it's how people right. are living, but then this is also how people are living. And how do we do it in a way that's honoring that it's not giving a bias, it's not doing a thing yeah. and, and just trying to be like, allow this to be a listening time. And um, in that way that is honoring to the community. And we've even found ways that we've had to grow. Like I remember after season two, people were like, everyone you're having on is like American. And so season three, yeah. we were like, okay, let's have more international guests on. Huh. Let's see what this yeah. looks like outside of the States. So, and then now we're looking to look more at like asexual ex experiences and demisexual experiences, which is something we really haven't covered. So it's definitely, um, yeah, it's definitely a growing process and yeah. just seeing how do you, how do you have these raw conversations? Yeah. But many times people are listening to them, looking for the polished situation. And, and um, I, I think that's even been something I've struggled with in my own life. Cause I, I feel like many times when you talk about faith and LGBT issues, people only want to listen to you if your if your life is like the model of something. And I'm like, yo, my life is not the model. <laughs> my life is far from being a model of yeah. anything. Um, and so there's this kind of thing of like, sometimes you feel like you have to be perfect in order to speak or have it perfectly in order to speak. And it's like, it's not, this is what life and faith looks like. Yeah, totally. No, yeah, that's no, good. That's good. Yeah. The whole, the, I'm still trying to wrestle with the platforming thing. Cause I, I do understand that there could be a certain area where you, where you are publicizing a certain viewpoint that could be dangerous or bad or whatever. At the same time, I don't know. Like for me, it's just this person exists their beliefs exist. <laughs> Wrestle with yeah. it. Listen to it. Disagree with it. Find out, you know, like I, it, it just because you acknowledge the existence of this person and the viewpoint, like what's the opposite? Like pretending like it doesn't exist or like, well, no, just don't mm -hmm. listen to people. No, you have to like, you have to wrestle with people, listen yeah. to people and engage people. And even if they're 90% off, like, all right, let me know why. Or do you know why that's, you know, like, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah. No, absolutely. That that totally makes sense. I think like one of the things I've been trying to live like I because I, I, I've wrestled with that same thing. Like how yeah. do you how do you do this and how do you have these conversations? And trying to see like how do I have conversations where I'm showing, listen, these are how people are living, but also recognizing that some of the ways that people live, they're not common. Like they're not real, like they're not yeah. wide out there. Like for instance, celibate partnerships. We love to talk about celibate partnerships. <laughs> There's not many, like they're really not that yeah. common. <laughs> can you, um, I mean, you've mentioned, can you explain what that is for people that are like, I'm not sure I even know what that means. <laughs> oh yeah. Good point. Yeah. Um, again, from my podcast, I'm used to not explaining terms. Totally, and then I, yeah. have to remember I, I think most people get it, but yeah. Yeah. So celibate partnerships are um, two celibate people um, that come together to, um, in a committed relationship. Um, normally they categorize them within friendship, a committed friendship sort of thing. And, um, then, um, and, and live life together in a way of supporting each other's celibacy. Um, but in a sense, it's creating a chosen family between two celibate people, 
um, in order uh, like answering that question, who's going to do life with me when I'm 80 years old? Right, well, yeah, here right. it is as a thing. Yeah. And so it's been one of those ways that I've seen um, side B people kind of find that community in a culture that does things through pairing. Um, like even as we try to change that part of culture of yeah. what it looks like. Okay. And it's um, celibate because of, for theological reasons, obviously. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's hard cause it's like people, um, can get very confused by that of what does that mean to like be in a committed relationship yeah. when you're celibate. Um, but it's been amazing to learn over I, – I spent a lot of time just finding everyone I could that was in celibate relationships. Yes. I was like, tell me about your relationship because <laughs> I'm very interested. Yeah. And it's been interesting to learn about people's lives yeah. and how they do this huh. and it, how they live. It's kind of like a heterosexual married couple after 50. <laughs> <I'm just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in some ways. Yeah. yeah. But I, I love love how one person that we had on Life on Side B put it um, said it's a, it's almost like a monastery of two huh. um, yeah. in many ways. Yeah. Uh, you're building this monastery kind of thing and you're you're doing it in, in a way. And um, and as two gay people, like yeah. learning what that looks like. And I don't think it necessarily has to be two gay people. I know there's been people that have talked about what would this look like. Normally, the, the celibate partnerships we see are two queer people of the same sex. Okay. Um, but categorically it would not even have to be that. Um, and so, yeah, it, I, I think that there's just not been a lot done on it and there definitely needs to be because there is a growing, it is a growing number of people, yeah. um, that are pursuing these relationships and it's been very beautiful to watch. I'm going to ask so. the question that every straight Christian is thinking like, gosh, isn't just like playing with fire or whatever. I mean, what about all the temptation and are you just coming way too close and it's just going to end up in a sexual relationship? Like, is that, I guess here, here, let me formulate my question in your experience of getting to know celibate partners and, and exploring, have you seen that be an issue that they all end up just becoming an affirming same sex relationship or is it not quite that way? <laughs> no, it's actually not. It, it's been, most people that are in celibate partnerships I know are very quiet. Um, and it's sad because there have been a few that have become very public and then went, um, and then went affirming. Okay. Um, and so normally when I have heard people say, oh, well, the, the couple I know went affirming, I'm yeah. like, is it the same couple I'm thinking of? And they're like, yes, it is. Yeah. Um, so I do think that, um, Ultimately, if someone thinks that they're in a relationship that's not helping their celibacy and hindering it, then yeah, yeah that needs to be a question that needs to be addressed. Okay. But I don't think that that is inherent within the, okay. the foundation and understanding of the relationship. Because ultimately, there is a thing of we can be drawn to be in community together and build each other up and look at how can I support you? Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, I don't even think celibacy was meant to be done alone. Right, totally. Um, it was meant to be done in community. That's why we see monasteries in the history of celibacy in many of these ways. Um, and uh, so I don't think that that is necessarily a playing with fire. I also think that many of us who are celibate are used to interacting with people that we're sexually attracted to. Right. It's, 
Right. It's kind of intrinsic in the situation. It's it's kind of like the question of, well, how do you as a gay person deal with the locker room? Well, we've been dealing with locker rooms <laughs> since childhood, so we've gotten good at this. Yeah. Um, and so I think that normally, especially queer people, are very um, used to being in situations like that. And so um, I don't think I normally tell like I've I've talked to people that, and I think this has been like some really good advice that's come up like. I don't think celibate partnerships are something to come into if a person thinks, well, I need a celibate partnership or else my my views might change. Well, then you need to work on your views yeah. before you think about being in a relationship. So I don't think it's going to save you from that. I don't think someone should get into a celibate partnership because they they want marriage and this is the closest they can get. Right. No, that's that's not what this is meant to be. It's not to, meant to be a pseudo marriage. It is some it is a relationship in and of itself, and it's meant to be in something I want someone to do life with in order to build me up in my celibacy, I can't do this on my own. Let's look at how we can do this together and build a chosen family in that way and build a community in that way. Um, and so I, I think it is hard because as I said, since there's not many resources in there, people are trying to figure it out as they can. And that doesn't always look polished and beautiful. And so I think that there's grace in there of people trying to honorably figure it out. When, Whereas with marriage, people can find people who've been doing it for 50 years, 60 years, 70 years that are open. There's relationships, there's conferences, there's books, there's all this different stuff. Celibate people don't have that. Not even yeah. really in, for intentional communities in general, but then even partnerships specifically. So I think that there is grace there needs to be grace in that understanding that people are doing something that they don't have much support on. Even just getting a pastor who doesn't know anything about partnerships, but's willing to like walk with people in partnership, I think is very like rare. Um, so there needs to be grace in that, but I don't think that that is intrinsic in it. But yes, if a person finds themselves in a situation uh, where they're like, I'm going about it for the wrong reason. Yeah. Or, I'm in a situation that's not supporting my syllabusy, then yeah, that, that would be, yeah, that would be a reason to be thinking through why are you doing this and is this best? That's super helpful. That really is helpful. Actually, uh, Greg Coles and I've been talking a lot about this. I mean, I've been thinking through it over the last several years. People ask me the question quite, a, quite often. And, um, yeah, so I'm still learning and growing. you know, the sexual yeah. temptation piece, I, I get, I get the question. I think it's a legitimate question, but I'm like, let's be honest. Gay, straight, bisexual, whatever your orientation is, if you want to have sex, you're going to have, like, people have been, you know, it's like, yeah, I understand certain situations more tempting than others, but it's like loads of straight Christians aren't living with the people they're maybe attracted to, and they're still figuring out a way to have sex outside of marriage. So I don't know, like, I I get it, but it's kind of like, let's make sure that question is viewed in a broader perspective. But, And this is where I normally just encourage people. I'm like, take a posture of listening. If you meet someone right. who is in a partnership, take that posture of listening and trying not to come in with assumptions. Ask them about it. Yeah, Ask them totally. what it's like for them. Ask them how they see it. Um, they're hard to find and they're hard, even harder to like, I, I think it's important to ask honoring questions because there are some questions that people just don't want to answer. Um, but, um, I, I think that um, the more we can create that posture of listening, I think the more we'll be able to um, create a space where people that are in partnerships will be more apt to be yeah. open. 
um, and be be able, therefore, to find support for themselves and also create avenues for this. Because um, ultimately, that's the thing. We, in order, I, I really think that kind of going back even to your question about how can churches make space for yeah. celibate LGBT people. I think that we need to start answering the question, not just about theology, but about how this can be lived out viably long-term. Because if we can't give people avenues to live this out viably long-term, then how can we expect them to do it? Um, And most celibate people are having to do it on their own. They're not doing it with the support of their church. They're not doing it with the support of their family. They're not doing it with that. They're doing it on their own. And then the crazy part is when we, when they figure out the viable way to do it long-term, we go, well, we don't agree with that because we don't agree with partnerships or we don't agree with this. And then they're like, well, what do you want from me? Like I'm doing this and I'm doing that. So I think it's really important for us to do that. And I would say the other thing is, is like this celibacy needs to not just be a conversation about LGBT people. It needs to be a conversation about straight people because if we're not calling people, straight people, the celibacy, then we're doing a disservice to them and LGBT people. But ultimately, yeah, we need to think about viable ways for people to live out celibacy long-term. And I, I think that partnerships is a way that people have found it and that um, ultimately we can't discredit that before mm-hmm. seeing why is it that people are choosing this. Yeah. Um, There's well, one more, I, I didn't expect to go here, but uh, yeah, yeah I, I've taken you over an hour. Um, but if, I, I would love to quantify, I don't even know if this is possible, but I would want to know how many like celibate partnerships have maybe fallen into a sexual relationship versus how many celibate partnerships have actually prevented um, somebody from falling into a sexual relationship apart from the celibate partnership. And what I'm, what I'm getting at is, you know, oftentimes a sexual relationship is a way to fill the, like, like you have in, needs for intimacy. Sex is one form of intimacy, but when non-sexual intimacy, intimate relationships are lacking, oftentimes that can feed into um, a desire to have a sexual relationship. So it's like how many people, let me formulate this, how many people, and again, I think it's probably impossible to figure out until, <laughs> but how many people, mm-hmm. you know, if they didn't have a celibate partnership relationship, um, would they have ended up having a sexual relationship because they didn't have the the non-sexual intimacy kind of cup being filled, you know, you know what I mean? Like I, so I don't know. Absolutely. I'd be curious even just not on a data point, but like get, you know, a few dozen couples in a room or whatever, and just have that conversation. Cause that, that, like you said, I mean the, the traditional sexual ethic, it has to not just be be true. I think that's, I mean, from my vantage point, I know people get upset when I say this seems pretty easy to see in scripture, but it's like, is it livable like that? You know, Mm -hmm. we can't, yeah, we can't, um, give the impression that you can't really survive until you fall in love with the person of your dreams and have a romantic sexual relationship and then tell gay people, Oh yeah, but you can't fall in love with it. You know, like we can't do yeah, both. Then you can't, yeah. This is a double standard that right. we're putting on people right. in many ways. Can I, one second, I have to plug my computer in because I realized it's, well, not, I, it's okay. not plugged in. Yeah, you could do it, but I, I gotta, I'm going to let you go anyway. Cause I have another BD to get to. Oh, you have another thing. Okay, yeah. Well, and and then you'll just have to cut. 
<laughs> well, Josh, yeah, thank you so much uh, for the conversation. I could talk to you for hours, bro. Um, uh, uh, Life on Side B, that's the name of the podcast. Encourage people to go there. Anything else you want to point people to or promote? Uh, po- you mentioned Posture Shift. A lot of people listening might know what that is, but uh, where can they find that? Yeah, go to PostureShift.com. It's a ministry. We're a missiological ministry that trains churches on how to love LGBT people in the church. You can go to PostureShift.com, GuidingFamilies.com there. Yeah, and Life on Side B, we have a website, LifeOnSideB.com. Okay. Um, thank you, Preston. I yeah. I have enjoyed listening to your podcast as well. It's super honor to be on here and um, look forward to deepening our friendship <laughs> in the future as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So. Yeah. All right, have a good day, man. You too. Hey friends, if you've been blessed, challenged, encouraged, or angered by this podcast, would you consider supporting it through patreon.com? That's patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. All the infos in the show notes. You can support the show for as little as five bucks a month and get access to Q&A podcasts, um, monthly Patreon-only blogs, and basically just get access to the community and help support this uh, ministry that we're doing at Theology in the Raw. Again, check out the show notes and consider supporting this show.